0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 297 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is from London, and it's one I've wanted to cover for a long time, and you'll see why as you listen to the story. But before we begin, let me thank all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That's Michelle Williams and Leanne Shaw. Thank you so much. Join us today for literally your last chance to enter our current competition, which is for two backstage tickets for my London show in August. To be in the draw for that prize, and you know you want to, just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Okay, so good news. I guess the Guest of Month and Year game is back this week. So let's set some context for today's story. Number one in the UK charts was Take Me to the Clouds Above from LMS vs U2. In the US it was "Outcast" with Hey yah. Ya. And in the Australian Album charts, in the top spot was Evanescence with Fallen. I haven't listened to Evanescence for ages, have you? In the news this month, Janet Jackson revealed a little bit more of her than was planned at the Super Bowl halftime show. Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook from his dorm room at Harvard. A big shout out to all of you in Facebook prison right now because of their stupid rules. Nazi hunter Simon Weissenthal was awarded an honorary knighthood in recognition of a lifetime of service to humanity. And in UK True Crime news. This was the month of the shocking incident in Morecambe Bay when 23 Chinese people drowned when a group of 35 cockle pickers were trapped by rising tides. It is, I think, hard to imagine just how terrifying they must have been in their final moments. So did you guess the month and year? It was February 2004. John Tuomi was born in Cork, Ireland before moving to England when he was five, following the death of his mum. He went to school in West London, in Paddington, but he got into a bit of bother with the police for petty theft, and this led to him spending time in Borstal. In 1971, he was involved in a more serious crime, an armed robbery, at a Westminster City Council building, which resulted in £27,000 being stolen, a decent amount almost 50 years ago. He was part of a gang of seven who used replica guns, and when he was caught, he pleaded guilty and was sent to prison for five years. But over the coming years, John wasn't at all impressed with the Metropolitan Police, and this feeling, it's fair to say, was reciprocated by Met Police officers. By the late 1970s, Detective Inspector Terence Babbage of the Met Police was so frustrated after John Twomey, in his opinion, had again escaped prosecution in cases in which he was involved. In a memo to his bosses, he said how, in his view, John was an evil and dangerous criminal, and that his solicitor was a devious and cunning individual who would go to any lengths to secure an acquittal for his clients. How dare anyone speak about solicitors in that way? You can understand his frustration in a way, as by 1983, except for that one armed robbery, John had been acquitted seven times for murder, wounding and armed robbery. Of course there are two sides and John had a very different view. He claimed that the Met Police had it in for him due to his confidence in his swagger, his reluctance to accept police evidence and because he had been willing to give evidence personally in Operation Countryman which was an investigation into police corruption in London in the 1970s. This was a high-profile inquiry which took place between 1978 and 1982 after John and others accused Met Police officers of planting evidence and other forms of corruption. Was corruption widespread in the 1970s Met Police? It's hard to say, but as anyone who has followed the shocking murder of Daniel Morgan in 1987 will know, it's hard to imagine that in a workforce of this size, there weren't some corrupt officers. And for other criminals, this investigation was a great opportunity to try to get out of their sentences. But we can't know for sure what was found, as the findings of Operation Countryman have been classified as secret for 70, seven zero years. The official reason, and why would we doubt it? being that the investigation had come to a natural end, corrupt officers had been identified and dealt with. As you can imagine, there are plenty of theories why the findings are so closely guarded, but look, that's for another podcast. One example of corruption given by John was a case from October 1977, when he had given evidence for the defence in the murder trial of a man called John Gordon. Just two days later, John was charged with a bank robbery. John managed to provide a tape recording on which two detective constables appeared to be asking a man for £1,500 in exchange for not fitting him up with that bank robbery. John's lawyer presented evidence that these two officers and Detective Inspector Babbage, who we mentioned earlier, had falsified evidence against John to show him guilty of the bank robbery. When no evidence was offered against John at the trial, the case was then taken over by Operation Countryman. John gave evidence to that inquiry against the officers involved and the four were tried and cleared in March 1982. But the charges against John were dropped because of the allegations of corruption in the case. As he left the witness box after giving evidence in Operation Countryman, John was arrested again for another robbery for which he was, of course, eventually acquitted. After this, he was quoted as saying, It's quite personal between me and the Metropolitan Police. I feel they are determined to get me. Who for sure knows the rights and wrongs of whether he was guilty or not guilty of any of these crimes, but he was acquitted, so we have to assume that he was not guilty. But either way, John Twomey was out of the public eye for another 20 years. He next appeared in the media in 2004, accused of leading a gang responsible for an armed robbery at Menzies World Cargo Secure Warehouse at Heathrow Airport. Detectives had been tipped off that something was going to happen at that warehouse and they were keeping tabs on two men they'd been told were going to be involved. That was John Twomey and his brother-in-law, Glenn Cameron. Police realised that the two had been in contact with a man called Darren Brockwell who had worked for Menzies for over eight years. He was an airside supervisor which saw him responsible for the unloading and loading of planes and lorries. Brockwell, twice divorced and around this time had a pretty serious cocaine habit. He had one minor conviction on his record from when he was 17 from when he stole from an employer. Brockwell was so key because he had access to the manifests which detailed the goods being flown in and out and on one occasion he noted that this involved currencies. It was here that the idea of robbery began to germinate and this thinking continued when he had checked bags on a number of occasions containing cash and he knew that currency was often held in the warehouse vault. It isn't uncommon at all for people like Brockwell it wasn't particularly well paid, to be tempted when working with money. We can all think of other examples, right? But he knew that to pull off a robbery like this, it had to be handled by a professional. And this is where John Twomey came in. Brockwell hadn't known Twomey before, but when he was talking to a colleague about potentially stealing money, that colleague said he knew someone who would be interested in helping steal the cash and the introductions were made. Tuomi was interested, and he put together a trusted gang of six people, and he planned the raid meticulously. But unbeknown to Tuomi, detectives were watching his meetings with Brockwell. In July, September, October and November 2003, detectives watched as he and Glen Cameron met with Brockwell. Then there were further meetings throughout 2004, Detectives knew something was planned, but what and when? It was the 6th of February 2004 when an Austrian Airlines plane landed at Heathrow, carrying a large amount of banknotes. Some of this cargo was being handled by Mendes on behalf of a customer called Via Mat and stored in the vault over the weekend. Brockwell had examined the manifest and believed that this plane was carrying over £10 million worth of currencies so this was the night that the robbery should go ahead. The gang booked themselves into a hotel near Heathrow the night before and waited for the time to make their move. Brockwell's job on the day was to get the key to the vault containing the money, but before that it was to get the gang airside. The gang were driven in a van to close to Heathrow, where they met Brockwell and concealed themselves in his van as he used his security pass to get them airside. I wonder if at any stage in this evening he would regrets about what he was doing or was he thinking about the cash reward. Once Brockwell had parked outside the scope of CCTV cameras, the gang burst in and told the 16 members of staff to get on the floor and they began to tie them up using cable ties. Most of the staff realised it was best to comply. After all, they were faced by six members of the gang each dressed in fluorescent jackets and black woolen hats, wearing masks to hide their faces, and all were armed with guns. But one man, David Westwood, ran off to the open where he was chased by one of the gang members. During the fracas, David Westwood was fired at three times, but luckily he escaped any serious injury. John Walton was the shift manager on duties at Menzies that night. It was 11pm when the nightmare began as a masked robber burst into his office. He was taken downstairs to the import office, where he saw staff members tied up on the floor. He knew immediately that these people weren't amateurs playing games. This was serious. John Walton was taken back upstairs to get the key for the vault, and in the space of under 15 minutes, £1.75 million in various currencies had been stuffed into the bags carried by the robbers. The gang didn't actually need the key from John Walton as they already had one from Rockwell but it was really important to show that they did as this would deflect attention during the investigation about the robbery being obviously an inside job. The gang left in a gold Ford Focus belonging to one of the employees and also hijacked a van which was arriving at the site and some members were in that van as it followed the focus out of the site. On the 8th of February, the Focus was found burnt out in Uxbridge, Northwest London. The next morning, Brockwell was arrested at his mum's house. At first, he claimed that he was forced to work with the gang under duress, but when he was shown clips of meetings he'd had with Twomey and Cameron, he soon admitted that this was all lies and that he was part of the plot to steal the money. He said he expected to receive half a million pounds for the role that he played. He added that the gang members had suggested the duress strategy to help him avoid getting into serious trouble. Brockwell agreed to give evidence about the involvement of others, in particular Twomey. His motivation was to get a lesser sentence, and he did. In the end, he was sentenced to prison for six years, but much more than that, he was put under witness protection where he still is today. Imagine that, always looking over your shoulder worrying that you might be compromised. The next morning, detectives raided John Twomey's house in Hampshire. He wasn't there, and there was no sign of him. But what they did find in the bin was a credit card receipt from a hotel, a day's hotel, in Ryslip, which is about 10 miles from Heathrow, and the hotel where John Twomey had stayed the night before the robbery and the night of the robbery. On the night of the robbery, CCTV showed at 23 minutes past midnight, his brother-in-law Cameron going to room 103, then leaving that room and meeting Twomey and another alleged member of the gang, Barry Hibbard, downstairs. They then returned to the room with what looks like a very heavy black Reebok holdall and another bag, which was presumably the stolen currency. Brockwell had told the gang there were to be 30 bags on the flight with a value of over £10 million. He'd misread the manifest, and there were only 7 bags with £1.75 million worth of currency. No doubt, although they were pleased with the haul, they must have cursed Brockwell for his slackness. After all, he was the man who was supposed to have the detailed inside knowledge. had left the hotel shortly afterwards in the early hours, whereas Twomey and Cameron stayed the second night that they had booked, before leaving at about 9.30 the next morning, where on CCTV they are both seen carrying a variety of heavy bags. A couple of days after the raid, Twomey and Cameron were named as suspects in the media. They still hadn't been found. But Twomey walked into a police station in Staines a couple of weeks later, on the 18th of February, with his solicitor. He told how when he saw his picture on TV... He went on a drinking binge. He said he had told Cameron that when their pictures were in the media about how he'd been fitted up in the past by the flying squad and not to worry as he would sort things out. Twomey was arrested and denied any involvement in the robbery. He was asked about a sketch of the Menzies warehouse that was found at his house on the raid the day after the robbery. He said it was nothing to do with him, he had no idea how it got there. When asked about the CCTV, which had shown him and two other gang members taking the bags up to his room at the day's hotel, he explained he'd been in the furniture business until mid-2003 when the business closed. After this, he bought and sold a variety of goods from DVDs to fireworks. He said he employed his brother-in-law, Cameron, as a driver, so often they were together. And on the evening of the robbery, when Hibbard, Cameron and Twomey were seen on the CCTV at Day's Hotel, they were simply carrying bags to his room containing beers and other goods that he planned to sell, which he didn't want to leave in his car overnight. Cameron was not arrested until March 2007 at a chalet in Perrenporth in Cornwall, living under the false name Withy. He told detectives that he was glad this was all over and he'd watched himself on Crime Watch a programme he watched religiously every month. He denied any involvement at all. He said he'd just not handed himself in as he was scared about what might happen. Hibbert and another man, Peter Blake, believed to be the man who fired shots during the robbery, were also arrested on suspicion of being involved in the heist. Assuming that Blake was the man who fired the shots on the night of the robbery, he had a few problems because his... Hat and mask had been taken off, and his DNA had later been found on them. He said that it wasn't him. He was first of all spoken to about the robbery. He tried on the the mask and the hat, but in the end, he didn't go through with it. A bit of a flaky excuse, but that was the excuse he gave. Detectives believed that Hibbert was involved because he was an expert in guns. But the evidence against him was that he was seen with Twomey and Cameron at the Days Hotel on the night of the robbery, and if detectives believed that Twomey and Cameron were guilty, then, by extension, Hibbert was guilty too. But it wasn't straightforward to try these men before the courts and it took four trials. During the first hearing at the Old Bailey in february two thousand five, John Twomey was being held on remand and suffered a serious heart attack. The jury were able to reach a decision on the evidence against him. Two years later, in March 2007, the next trial took place with Twomey, Blake and Hibbard in the dock, but the Crown Prosecution Service believed that someone had nobbled the jury. It was a bizarre series of events. By the time the jury retired in August, they were down to 10 members. They sent a note indicating they'd reached on all defendants and on all counts a very strong majority decision. The judge passed this news to the defence barristers that the verdicts were likely to be adverse to them. But as this was just before bank holiday weekend, the judge then took the decision that it wasn't appropriate to give the jury a majority direction at that stage. A poor decision in hindsight. One of the panel was compromised over that weekend They refused to return, saying they were stressed, leaving just nine jurors. And with that number of jurors, the law says only a unanimous verdict can be taken. But this jury were unable to agree to unanimous verdict, leading to their discharge. Then at the third trial in December 2008, when Cameron for the first time stood trial, the judge stopped the hearing nearly halfway through after hearing information once again the jury had been got at. Judge Roberts told the jury he was devastated to have to tell them he would have to discharge them as well. He did not explain why but earlier told the court, solid information came to my attention that an attempt has been made to nobble more than one of the jurors on this jury. Nobody ever faced any charges on tampering with the jury and the information about how it had been done, if it had been done, was not forthcoming because it was a matter of such sensitivity, said the authorities. twomey was told there would be a fourth trial. He spoke to the Guardian about this and was, I think, understandably considerably annoyed by how he'd been treated by the system. This has gone on for nearly six years, it's blown my family apart, he said. There were people who were serving eight, ten and twelve year sentences with me in Belmarsh, who have served their time, and are out now, and my life, well, what I have left of it with my ill health, was on hold. Now I believe I will die in prison. He said he'd never been shown any evidence of jury tampering. Then he heard the news that the fourth trial was going to be, for the first time in over 350 years, in front of just a judge with no jury present. This jury-less trial was the first of its kind under the provisions contained in the Criminal Justice Act 2003 to prevent the jury being got at. The only other judge-only trials for serious cases, known as diplock trials, had so far been in Northern Ireland. As you can imagine, the great and the good of the legal profession and human rights groups were appalled by this decision, with many fearing that doing this would prove to be a significant moment taking away the centuries-old principle of trial by jury. But the Lord Chief Justice gave it the go-ahead, saying it was very unusual circumstances and permission could only be granted if there was a real and present danger of jury tampering and a substantial likelihood that it would occur, even if steps are taken to prevent it, so that trial by judge alone is necessary in the interests of justice. I wonder if you agree. Is it the right thing? I've got my doubts. For John Twomey, however, this came down to the police and criminal establishment doing all they could to send him away for his actions over 30 years ago that we spoke about at the beginning of this episode. In another interview with the Guardian, he told how he felt he'd been denied justice. I'm in this situation because the police know they lost the case before. In front of a judge alone, I know I'll be convicted. I have no shadow of a doubt. Remember what he said all those years ago? It's quite personal between me and the Metropolitan Police. I feel they are determined to get me. I think many of you will see his point, after all. Even before the fourth trial, it is estimated that the costs to the public for the first three trials were a massive £30 million for the robbery which netted £1.75 million and although a gun was discharged, nobody was seriously injured. At the juryless trial, Mr Justice Treacy, sitting at the Old Bailey, found the four men guilty of the robbery, with the help of Menzies worker Darren Brockwell, who, as I said, was jailed for six years at a previous hearing. The judge told them, You four got away with others with £1.75 million. You clearly hoped and intended to obtain several times more than that. You were armed with firearms. One of you carried a submachine gun. More than 12 members of staff were rounded up, threatened and restrained, and in at least two cases, roughed up in order to enable the robbery to take place. Each of the defendants has lied to me. Some have called false evidence. The fact there has been a delay of six years isn't a matter that can greatly assist you. Turn to 62-year-old John Twomey. The judge told him he was the leader of the plot as he was jailed for 20 years and 6 months. Twomey wiped away tears and waved to a woman who was silently crying in the public gallery as he was taken down to begin his sentence. 57-year-old Peter Blake was given three life sentences for robbery and firearms offences and was ordered to serve at least 10 years and 9 months before being eligible for parole. Twomey's brother-in-law, 50-year-old Glenn Cameron, was jailed for 15 years and 33-year-old Brian Hibbard was jailed for 17 years and 6 months. As he was led away, he winked at the press bench and said, Be lucky. Detective Superintendent Stuart Cundy, the head of the Flying Squad, said, These are dangerous individuals who organised a complex armed robbery to steal a substantial amount of money and expected to get away with it. They were prepared to not only carry guns, but also to use them to ensure their plan succeeded. And what about the £1.75 million that was stolen? Not a penny of it has ever been recovered. Detectives, I think, suspected where it had been laundered, but there was not enough evidence to proceed with any charges. So, what do you make of what we've heard today? The personal battle between John Twomey and the Met police that we discussed at the very beginning of this episode seems to be over. With Tuomi now likely to die in prison, has he now ended up firmly on the losing side in this battle? And is that right? This isn't the podcast to go through all the evidence in minute detail, but it strikes me that even if the men are guilty, and they could well be, I don't know, there is more than enough doubt in the evidence To see why previous juries Were unable to make a decision If you can take the time to read The evidence from the fourth trial See what you think Let me know But for now Twomey and at least three members of the gang The others weren't ever traced Now are in their cells In prison Thank you so much for taking the time To listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast To discuss this story or any other aspect Of UK true crime just head along to the Facebook group and you'll find almost 82,000 of us ready to chat UK True Crime 24-7. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK Not only will you find over 40 bonus episodes, but there's a ton of other exclusive content and competitions, such as your chance to win backstage tickets to my live show in London in August, tickets just £12. Get yours now from any of my social outlets. You can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and cancel at any time not that you will ever want to of course. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime Okay so that's all for me for another week I'll speak to you again on Tuesday for another story from the UK's 37th most popular true crime host and the only one with freedom of the town of Rochdale. Until we speak again next Tuesday please do take it easy